Mr. Prime Minister, ladies and gentlemen, good morning and welcome to the LSE's Asia Forum. And I should first say how grateful we are to our partners and sponsors for helping us organize what I hope will be a very rewarding day for you all. Uh, in particular, we have had enormous assistance from the Reserve Bank and a strong personal support from Dr. Reddy, whom we're delighted to see here, um, and from the Confederation of Indian Industry, with whom we work on many ventures here uh, in India, um, and of course from the uh, State Bank of India, uh, Mr. Bhatt, and I'll talk about their support a little bit later, and as you can see from Tata and Standard Chartered. We're also especially grateful to Prime Minister Manmohan Singh for agreeing to be with us this morning. From outside India, it seems to us that being Prime Minister of this country, a country of more than a billion people, must be an awe-inspiring task. And we are honoured that he should have chosen to come to us today. LSE alumni in India are, of course, very important people, but I calculate they only represent about 0.0005 of a percent of the population. Uh, so, Prime Minister, uh, if you did another 2 million or so of these speeches, you would have covered the whole of the Indian population. Uh, and that is just to prove that the LSE still has a Department of Population Studies, uh, which we do. Uh, but I suspect, in fact, you are here not so much because of the people who are in the room, but more because of someone who sadly is not in the room, and that is your long-standing colleague, I.G. Patel, who, of course, was one of my predecessors as director of the school and whom we commemorate here today and we are particularly delighted that his widow, Bibi Patel, is with us this morning and indeed during the day. And in a moment, a few of those who knew IG well, better than I did, will speak a little about his career. But I can say on behalf of the LSE today that we owe a lot to him. His appointment as director of the school, signalled a global approach taken by the institution and he helped to propel us to a particular and prominent role among international universities. The LSE is now home to students from more than 130 nationalities. We are currently home to 250 Indians and 180 Pakistanis, to 1,000 Americans and 200 French, to 12 Icelanders and to two Kazakhs. Uh, and if we are to make a success of our interdependent world, the secret will be found, I think, on the playing fields of the LSE or in the bars of the LSE. I can confirm that at present Icelandic-Kazakh relations are particularly good, by the way, uh, though the Americans and the French are still working on some issues, um, but we hope with eventual success. 
In Asia specifically, we believe that the LSE does have a lot to contribute. Many of our academics are engaged in research on current issues relevant to development in Asia and particularly in India. I looked at just some recent papers produced by our academics. They were on HIV AIDS in India, on the implications of Kyoto, on clean development in rural India, uh, on trade policy making in India, on operationalizing pro-poor growth, on post-earthquake rehabilitation in India, on attitudes to prostitution in India, a whole range of economic, developmental and social issues where people currently in the school are working on issues and working in a way which I think is very relevant to policymakers in India. We aim to expand that work, we aim to expand our numbers of Indian students and I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But first, we have prepared some tributes to IG and his work. Three of them will be on video from Amartya Sen, from Mervyn King, the current governor of the Bank of England, of course, and Professor Bill Cornish, who worked with IG very closely at the school. And then, uh, in real life, we will have Sir Nicholas Stern on stage, uh, who also worked very closely with IG. Uh, and then I shall speak again briefly to introduce the Prime Minister. So I hope now that the videos will appear. Thank you. Well, one of the great privileges of my life has been the opportunity of knowing I.G. Patel, R.I.G., well over nearly half a century. I first had the chance of meeting him um, in the middle 1950s. Uh, we were introduced by his father-in-law, Professor Omir Dasgupta, is still a product of the London School of Economics who worked here with Lionel Robbins and who also had a role in my own teaching uh, and indeed I believe he also influenced IG in many different ways. Um, I was struck immediately on meeting IG by the combination of qualities that made up his remarkable personality. He was of course remarkably intelligent, um, supremely so, but he was also extraordinarily kind and sensitive and interested in other people that uh, he came in touch with um, amazingly um, uh, involved with trying to do what he could for others. But along with this tremendous intelligent and tremendous goodwill and generosity, IG also had a great sense of dedication to the causes that he found reason to pursue. These causes have varied over the years. Uh, it's, uh, he was setting 
well, he began with the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, but he was also then setting the government of India's economic and social policies right. He ran the Reserve Bank and the Indian bank banking world. Uh, globally, he set the United Nations development efforts on course. With all that background, when he came to the London School of Economics, he was ready for what was really a remarkably, astonishingly challenging job, which he did um, extraordinarily well. Um, I think uh, one of the reasons why IG was um, so successful is I think he took a great deal of care uh, involving scrutiny, conversation, consultation about what he wanted to achieve. And then once he knew what he wanted to achieve, he was able to pursue that with a dedication which almost always led to success. His willingness to listen was quite remarkable. I remember one occasion when I think he was appointing a professor of philosophy at, at the LSE that I was rung up by IG four times during the same day for fairly long calls to the exasperation of my secretary at Oxford who was trying to get me to do something else but I was very touched by the way he went into the varieties of qualifications of the people involved and, and also took an interest in, 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 in a point of view that he was then seeking. I think there's no question that the big success of uh, IG relates not just to his extraordinary in intellect, but also to his style, to his willingness to listen all around. Um, if there's a fault of uh, IG, I think perhaps it is sometimes, it was sometimes thought when he first came to LSE that he was too soft-spoken in meetings to be heard by everybody. I remember being very impressed when my friend um, Jean Drez, who was then teaching at LSE, drew my attention to a graffiti in a toilet in the London School of Economics which said, simply said, director, director, speak up, speak up. I remember then thinking that if this is the severest criticism that IG was getting, then his performance as a director must have been remarkably blemish-free, and indeed it was. I think IG's unwillingness to speak up very loudly wasn't because of any defect of his vocal cord, uh, as far as I'm aware, but I think it was his style. He didn't want to assert his point of view. He was a naturally good listener and interactor, which he did astonishingly well. Whatever he stated in his quiet voice, he would stick firmly to, so that it's not the case that he was a pushover, he never was. But at the same time, it was never through strong assertiveness that he tried to establish his point of view. It's rather with reason, uh, having considered different point of view, and presenting his position to the world in a 
in a way that interactive, which made IG the kind of wonderfully successful um, professional, as well as, of course, academic, which he was for a little while too, uh, that he was. I think IG leaves us a lot of lessons, but particularly strong lesson about how to deal with the very difficult world in which we live. We happen to live in a pretty terrible world with violence and intolerance all around. I think what IG was teaching us, quite aside from the content of his very substantive research and, and writings and lectures, but he was still teaching us something about style as well, namely that it is possible to get your point of view heard while you're listening to the point of view of others, not cutting them out, and that you don't have to get your way by pushing people around. You have to find your own way of dealing with it, but his own way, which offers a lesson for us all, was that you can be a good interactor, a good listener, a good communicator, and a good soft-speaking uh, talker, without forgetting your role as a leader as well, which of course he was in many walks of life. So when I reflect on the remarkable life and achievements of IG, uh, and I of course known them, uh, IG and his wife Bibi, throughout my life, uh, it is quite, um, uh, it, it's a move, tremendously moving thought to see how privileged I have been in knowing them and knowing IG, whom we are remembering today, um, in, in such a close way. Uh, it's an opportunity that came my way, which uh, I, I feel still extraordinarily grateful for. And I'm also grateful to have had this opportunity of being able to join others today in paying tribute to our very remarkable IG, IG Patel. It's the greatest pleasure to pay tribute to IG. I happened to be vice chairman of the school's academic board at the time when the Darendorf years were drawing to a close and the search was on for a new director. Several people who knew IG's remarkable character and record suggested him as a possibility and from the moment that his name went on to the list of possibles, it ranked high. Hugh Weldon was the chairman of the school's Court of Governors at that time, and Anthony Park was the vice chairman. Those two and I were deputed by the selection committee to meet IG when he passed through Heathrow on one of his transatlantic voyages. And in, in fact, we met in one of those anonymous hotels along the 
northern perimeter of the uh, airport. If any one person was incisive in persuading IG that the job of director of the LSE was for him, it was Hugh. Hugh came to the meeting in bubbling, persuasive form. IG listened and his smile glinted and one could see that a relationship between the pair was already forming, one that was going to be of crucial importance in things to come. There were other excellent candidates for the directorship. Some of them came to be interviewed. IG preferred just to come to lunch with the selection committee. Nonetheless, it was he that the committee chose. His influence on the school when he first arrived, I would say, was subtle, because that was in his nature. In great spaces like the academic board, his light voice did not carry well, and he had to be miked, which he did not like. But as people came to know him, they began to realize what a director they had acquired. He had a ready sympathy and interest in all the school's departments and very much with individuals, both uh, staff and students. These were times when the financing of the school came from government through the University of London. Therefore, IG's greatest contribution of all perhaps may have been as a member of the university's court. There his natural persuasiveness and his extraordinary eye for columns of figures worked extraordinarily well in the school's favour. With that, but with many other contributions, he continued to steer the school along the momentum of the Darendorf years towards an optimistic future in which students would pay fees but still the best in the world would come and be taught by excellent teachers. We remember him for that, of course, but also the great affection that everyone had for him was absolutely firm. When he came after his retirement back to the school on visits, it was palpable. Good morning. I'm sitting in the Governor's office at the Bank of England. I'm not in Delhi because this morning we are setting interest rates. This is an office which I.G. Patel knew well from his time as Governor of the Reserve Bank of India. But when I first met I.G., he had finished his term as a Central Bank Governor and I was a long way from starting. It was September 1984 and IG had just arrived as the new director of the LSE. I was teaching at the LSE after following a path trodden by IG 
between Cambridge, England and Cambridge, Massachusetts. IG immediately impressed us all at the LSC as a, a man of great worldly experience who didn't feel the need to remind us of his achievements when dispensing advice. His quiet but firm manner, allied to his enormous experience, enabled him to achieve a great deal at the LSC by allowing others to take the credit. I owe a particular debt to IG for two reasons. First, to him belongs the credit for encouraging Charles Goodhart and myself to set up uh, a new research centre at LSE, the Financial Markets Group. In the academic, political and administrative hothouse that is LSE, starting a new research group was by no means straightforward and the shortage of accommodation was a further stumbling block. But we knew that we could always rely on the quiet influence and support of IG to ensure that, in the end, everything would work out for the best. My second debt is that one of IG's final acts as director of the LSE was to offer me an extended period of leave of three rather than the usual two years in order to become the chief economist of the Bank of England. He believed that economics had a great deal to offer the policy world, especially that of central banking, and he believed that experience of policy making was an important input into the university curriculum. IG led by example. Few others influenced the world in a way that he did. He may have started his early studies by travelling for 48 days by sea to come from India to England in 1944. But after that, he travelled and worked throughout the world, moving at a great pace. His academic appointments spanned three continents. He was a distinguished central bank governor, and he worked for both the IMF and the United Nations. And he was also a founder member of the Group of 30 in 1978. It's hardly surprising that Britain awarded him an honorary knighthood. IG was a truly great international public servant. Many might have had their heads turned by such academic and worldly success. But throughout his life, IG influenced and persuaded people by his example of modesty and hard work. That's why so many people remember IG with a mixture of warmth and respect and why I wish I could be with you today. It's a great honor for us, um, Dr. Manmohan Singh, to have you here with us today. And for me personally, since you played such a big part in bringing me to India uh, to begin work on Village India in 1974. And um, thank you, Director Dr. Reddy, 
and Mr. Butt for being with us. IG was an outstanding policymaker, an extraordinarily gifted analysis, an analyst, and a great administrator. He was also one of the finest human beings any of us have ever met. I'd like to speak, to him, speak of him today in terms of the relationships between an LSE academic and a deeply admired director, and second, as a model to all of us as an economic thinker and policymaker. Leading an academic institution is no easy task. Academics are selected and self-selected for their ability to challenge, to go off in original directions, and to follow ideas wherever their inquiry takes them. That does not make them natural institutional beings. But when IG asked you to do something, you did it cheerfully. You did it because you respected the analysis, thought and judgment behind his decision and request, because he discussed things openly and without prejudice, because of his absolute integrity, because of his motivation to do the best for the school and its students and teachers, and crucially for an academic institution, because of his outstanding quality of mind. We all saw IG as an intellectual, as one of us. IG hired me, and he was a key factor in many of us coming to the school. As well as being our boss, I and so many others saw him as an uncle who would always look after us. And we had the great fortune that it was not just IG who guided and looked after us, it was BB2. As an economic policymaker, his career was extraordinary. He combined his outstanding analytical capabilities with a great practical sense, an understanding of people and institutions, and an intense moral purpose. And he was a natural problem solver. There are others here who worked much more closely with him than I did in this part of his life as economic policymaker. But I wanted to say something briefly about his intellectual journey as an economist. In many ways, it was the intellectual journey of India's economic policy. Talking to IG about the development of his ideas, you were constantly reminded of his relentless inquiry, his respect for the evidence, and his continuous search for ways to make the world a better place. Just as in his role as director, you knew that this was a gifted intellectual at work. His spirit of inquiry, his integrity, his honesty, his pragmatism, his insight into governance and political systems, and his sense of purpose were in the great, although very different, traditions of Gandhiji and of John Maynard Keynes. Gandhiji, writing in 1933, said, In my search after truth, I have discarded many ideas and learnt many new things. Old as I am in age, I have no feeling that I have ceased to grow inwardly. Keynes is famously said to have remarked, When the evidence changes, I change my view. What do you do? This IG was continually learning and adjusting as the circumstances and evidence changed. His journey from the planning of the 1950s to the greater reliance on markets of the 1980s and 1990s was for him a very natural one 
driven by the times and by experience. But there was also a constancy of purpose and analysis throughout all this. And there was the balance, the balance that was so important to IG, the balance between the responsibilities of the state and of the individual, the balance between incentives and distributive justice, the balance between government failure and market failure, the balance between stability and the search for improvement. And with that, there was a constant presence of the highest integrity of the duty of office and the goal of raising the living standards of the poor people of India and of the world. But let me close with IG's own words, from the epilogue to his glimpses of Indian economic policy and insider's view. They demonstrate so well why those at the LSE and economists throughout the world saw him as a real leader and how in his person and in his career he embodied what LSE should strive to be. I quote, There will always be debates and discussions on the moral, political, social and economic responses necessary to new challenges and new opportunities. And therein lies the thrill and the adventure. Utopias would be as dull as death. Economics, at the end of the day, is about choice. And the right and ability and desire to choose, which includes choosing something difficult, not yet there, and working for it, is what distinguishes us from the rest of creation. So let us economists rejoice that economic policy is forever. Not any particular policy, to be sure, but the search for a better one. The good will never be enough, and the best is a contradiction in terms. This was a wonderful man whose presence so enriched our lives. Through his values and standards, he continues to guide us today. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm now able uh, to reveal to you that Nick Stern's last contribution was partly a tribute to I.G. Patel and partly a job interview uh, because I'm delighted to be able to say that with support from Dr. Reddy and the Reserve Bank and Mr. Butt and the State Bank of India, we are today setting up a new chair at the LSE in honour it will be a chair in perpetuity known as the IG Patel Chair in Development Economics and I wasn't sure before this morning whom to ask to do this but Nick was very impressive so I'm going to ask Nick Stern uh, <laughs> and seriously we are delighted uh, that he has agreed 
to do the job. He is currently, of course, head of the Government Economic Service at the Treasury. He has recently completed a project on climate change, which we believe will be, well, already is, I think, hugely influential around the world, and we are thrilled that he will come back to the London School of Economics next year to take up this post. This is, of course, a week for returns, and we hope that the LSE and his colleagues will receive Nick Stern back just as warmly as his colleagues have received Surav Ganguly back into the Indian cricket team. Possibly even more warmly. And Nick will head the India Observatory, as it will be known, which will be a new focal point at the LSE for research into Indian contemporary affairs. We have support for research posts associated with that institute from LSE alumni in the UK and indeed from others like the Bagri Foundation and by Shandi Modi and his company. We will also be announcing today some new Indian scholarships financed by HSBC and others and Tata Foundation. So there is a large package about which you can all, I hope, read in our uh, press releases, which I think demonstrates a major jump forward for the school in its engagement with India. Finally, it's a great honour for me now to invite the Prime Minister to speak to you. It's slightly odd in a way for an Englishman to introduce the Indian Prime Minister to a primarily, primarily Indian audience, so I uh, will not do that at great length, except to say that from a British perspective, Manmohan Singh has a huge reputation in the UK as a distinguished public servant in many capacities. Many of the things that have been said about I.G. Patel could, with equal weight, be said about Manmohan Singh, and we are truly honoured that he should join us this morning at this forum. Prime Minister. Dr. Howard Davis, Dr. Reddy, Sir Nicholas Stir, Shri Opi Bhatt, distinguished ladies and gentlemen, I am delighted to be here today to open a conference in memory of a very dear friend. Dr. I. My wife and I have fond memories of a lifetime of friendship with I.G. as we all knew him and his charming wife, Bibi. I first met I.G. in 1954 
before I went to Cambridge. He had just returned from the IMF and taken over as Deputy Economic Advisor to the Ministry of Finance. He gave me some sound advice for deriving the best possible benefit of my stay at Cambridge. This was the beginning of an association which lasted for over 50 years. When I returned home in 1957, after completing my studies at Cambridge, I was offered a job in the Ministry of Finance. However, I was under an obligation to return to my university in Punjab since I was in England on a scholarship given by that university and which required me to return home and teach at that university. So I could not join the government then. In 1962, when I was at Oxford, IG again invited me to join the Ministry of Finance. On this occasion too, I was unable to join the staff of the Ministry of Finance. It was more than a decade later that I finally did join the Government of India. As economic advisor to the then Ministry of Commerce, I had frequent interaction with I.G. Patel, who was then Secretary Economic Affairs in the Ministry of Finance. In 1972, I moved to the Ministry of Finance as Chief Economic Advisor. That position gave me an opportunity to work very closely with I.G. Later on, when I was Secretary of Economic Affairs and IG returned to India after a tenure with the UNDP as Governor of the Reserve Bank of India, I worked very closely with him in formulating India's macroeconomic policies. Because of his profound wisdom, knowledge and experience, IG was the natural leader of economists working in the government. I, for one, learned a great deal from him. In many ways, he was, for me, a friend, philosopher, and guide. The 1950s and the 60s were a unique period in our developmental history. There was great interaction between officials in government and scholars in the universities, both scholars from India and from abroad. We had, I recall, several distinguished economists like Nicholas Caldor, John Robinson, Milton Friedman, John Kenneth Galbraith, IMD Little, Trevor Swan, W.B. Redaway, and Daniel Thorner, who spent some time at our planning commission. There was always a two-way flow of talent between institutions 
like the Delhi School of Economics and the Indian Statistical Institute and the various ministries of our government. This interaction enriched the quality of academic research, making it more policy-oriented and also contributed, I believe, to creative thinking in the government. It has become fashionable of late to deride everything that was done in the realm of economic policy in those days. There are critics both on the left and the right. However, to be fair and honest, one must recognize that the early years after India's independence were truly exciting times in India. Under the inspiring leadership of Jawaharlal Nehru, a new generation of our countrymen tried to write on a blank state and create a new nation state. The Indian economists were active participants in the national debate to build a new India free from the fear of want and exploitation. There was much experimentation since there were no known methodologies available for the construction of a new post-colonial nation. The political and intellectual atmosphere was charged with intense debate and discussion. The bold visions of a brave new world were being created on paper. IG was one of the many idealistic young economists who chose to participate in that great adventure of nation building. Under the leadership of men like Dr. V.K.R. Virao, Sarchintaman Deshmukh, Professor P.C. Mahalnubis, and Professor J.J. Anjaria, a new generation of brilliant economists that included K.N. Raj, I.G. Patel, Pitambar Pan, S.R. Sen, V.K. Ramaswamy, and many others joined government. Economists, scientists, scholars from various disciplines worked closely with civil servants and political leaders to chart a new course for the Indian economy. Men like IG, who preferred a career in government to a career in academia, provided that crucial link. It was both an intellectual link and a warm personal link. I confess, I miss that environment today. I do hope we can somehow recreate it and facilitate greater lateral mobility in and out of government and a freer flows of ideas so that both policy and research are enriched through this process. Ladies and gentlemen, in paying tribute to IJ, 
I must also pay tribute to the London School of Economics and Political Science. The LSC has always had a strong India link. Some of LSC's faculty, like Vera Anstey and Harold Losky, were extremely close to India and to Indians. Professor Losky had great many followers, even among our political leaders at the time. Many of his students, like P.N. Huxer and our former president, Kier Narayanan, had distinguished careers in our government. Often, their appointment to government service was based on a mere note of recommendations from Professor Losky to Jawaharlal Nehru. Even before independence, LSC contributed several distinguished economists to India, like Dr. J.J. Anjaria. In the early years after independence, there was a flood of them who returned home from LSC to participate in the great saga of national development. The most prominent of them was Kian Raj, who was recruited by Jawaharlal Nehru to help draft the first five-year plan at the tender age, I believe, of 27. What I have always appreciated about the LSC is the emphasis on interdisciplinary approaches in its academic programs. LSE took a holistic view of social sciences and of development. Its faculty appreciated the links between economists, economics, politics, sociology, anthropology, and law in the development process. In more recent decades, we see excessive specialization in social sciences, and economists fancy themselves to be social engineers and technocrats. But we must never forget that economics began, after all, as political economy. Economic policy making has always involved political choices, since it has political consequences. I.G. belonged to a generation that recognized this ground reality. He knew that the choices our economists were recommending for adoption by our country had to be marketed in the political marketplace of a functioning democracy. It was not enough that these choices were rational or that their costs and benefits could be measured. It was not enough that the arguments were intellectually consistent or were mathematically tested. In a democracy, such choices had to be also politically defendable and acceptable. It was a tribute to the holistic education that I.G. received at Cambridge that he was not 
only a good economic advisor, a good finance secretary, a good central bank governor, but also a good administrator who excelled in his understanding of the political economy of development. Ladies and gentlemen, in the past century, LSC has contributed a great deal to the economics of development, especially in Asia. I am therefore pleased that you have today an LSC Asia Forum. Just as the LSC focused its intellectual resources on the development challenges facing the post-colonial developing world, it must now study in depth the growth dynamics in Asia and its implications for the world economy and polity at large. The most important development, I believe, of the 21st century will be the rise of Asia. China has already trebled its share of world GDP over the past two decades, and India has doubled it. Both these giant economies of Asia are bound to gain a considerable part of their share of world GDP that they had lost during the two centuries of European colonialism. While Japan will continue to be at the top in the foreseeable future, the newly industrializing economies of East and Southeast Asia will, I believe, grow even if not at rates we witnessed in the past two decades. Taken together, the rise of these Asian economies will alter the balance of income distribution at the global level. This need not worry the West, since a dynamic Asia can power global growth and provide new opportunities for growth for Europe as well as for North America. But it is essential that the West should come to terms with the consequences of the rise of Asia. In the long run of history, nations rise and fall. This in itself is not a new phenomenon. Regrettably though, the record of history is found wanting as far as the ability of nations to deal with such absent flows of history is concerned. One of the reassuring aspects of the ongoing growth process is that it is more orderly. Just as the world accommodated the rejuvenation of Europe in the post-war world, it must now accommodate the rise of new Asian economies in the years that lie ahead. What this means is that we need global institutions and new global rules of the game that can facilitate the peaceful 
rise of new nations in Asia. It also means that the existing global institutions and frameworks of cooperation must evolve and change to accommodate this new reality. This is as true for the reform and revitalization of the United Nations and the restructuring of the United Nations Security Council as it is true for the management of multilateral trading system or for the protection of global environment or for the security of world energy supplies. Western academic institutions played a leading role in shaping intellectual thinking after the Second World War to facilitate peaceful post-war reconstruction and development of Europe and of Japan. Once again, institutions like the LSC must ponder over how the world can now accommodate the growth aspirations of the developing world so that the rise of Asia is peaceful. We often say that globalization is a reality that we must contend with. We also say that globalization offers opportunities as much as it poses challenges, that people and nations must learn to deal with both. But there are still many unsettled questions pertaining to globalization. Even the discipline of economics has not addressed the phenomena in a holistic manner. For example, while there is enormous and quite long-standing literature on the benefits of free trade in goods and free flow of capital, the literature and policy on the free movement of people remains scanty and patchy. There are questions pertaining to the globalization of lifestyles and its consequences for consumption and their impact on the world environment. Is growth sustainable if development in the developing world merely mirrors the experience of the developed? It is not just that third world households may not be able to afford Western consumption standards, our planet would not be able to do so. If every consumer in India and China, totaling up to almost three billions, want to live like people in San Francisco, Stockholm or Singapore, can they afford to? Can nature afford it? If not, how do we alter lifestyles and consumption patterns so that the growth process is sustainable in a more globalized world? I believe a new generation of economists and social scientists have to once again write and draw on blank slates like IG's generation did.
there are i believe no textbook solutions there are no pet answers no clever models the rise of asia and of the developing world in general presents us with new challenges new intellectual challenges new technological challenges new organizational and political challenges i hope your forum and forums like yours will be able to inspire younger scholars to address these questions and seek answers for the need of our is to do so i wish your conference all success thank you grateful for those remarks which give us a lot of food for thought indeed i would go further and say that you have pretty much defined nick stern's research program for the next decade uh, or more you have got our forum off to an excellent start both in terms of your distinguished personage being with us but also the strong analytical and intellectual content of what you had to say uh, which has left me uh, with many thoughts about how we should consider and structure our research program in the school thank you so much for coming we have a small memento of your presence here today